An Alitalia DC-9 is doing a flight from Milan to Zurich when the plane crashes into a mountain. What caused this flight to go so wrong so close to the airport? Welcome back to the Heartlandings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. Today we have... Oh, hello. I'm Al. <laughs> He's guys, back. Yeah. You guys have met him before, a while ago. Like Nick's a year dad. Ago. Yeah. He uh, just got done climbing a 14,000-foot-tall uh, 14, 14, mountain today. Yeah, it was fun. Mount Quandary. Yep. So He's probably a little tired, but he's here. And, and I will have questions for him later. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. We got some patrons we have to thank. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yes, we, we a, do. We have a bunch of new patrons. Yeah. So I think Dave came back. So welcome back to Dave. Hello to Megan. Uh, Hello to Kylie. Welcome special, back, Ash. Special thanks to Kylie and her son, Tiernan, who is a huge fan of ours. They're technically sharing the Patreon account. But Kylie's a coworker of mine, and her son, Tiernan, has been absolutely ecstatic about everything we do. So I wanted to give them a special shout out. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you, new patrons and patrons, other patrons for coming back. <laughs> you said thank you to Ben, right? Oh, Ben. Crap. Wait, <laughs> there's more. We, we got a lot of newbies. There's more. Thank you to me. Yes. And thank you to my boss, Ben. For... And not me like you. Like me. Like, like am I. Yes. Me. And then Ben. And then Ben. Would you like to explain? Ben is my boss. And he, he doesn't really listen to the podcast, but he says he's willing to support passionate people. So he, he there, there's that. Much appreciated. appreciate that. I don't think he will take advantage of any of the benefits, but... That's okay. That's okay. All right. That, that, that's it for that, right? Is there anything else? Uh, if you want ducks, you, you can get those. Yep. Just got to go to the bottom of the homepage, fill out the form, we'll send you ducks. Yeah. And I think that's it for housekeeping. Before we get any more, all right. What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Alitalia Flight 404. And Miranda's brain had an arrow, error 404. Yes, it did. Yes. And it is quite fitting that Al is here with his uh, Italian accent and oh, Italian yeah, heritage. I, yeah, I have an Italian accent now. Nobody ever, <laughs> ever guesses that. So this one, I mean, that wasn't actually even on purpose at all. Nope. He just happened to be in town, and he's... Uh, yeah, he's Well, thank you for letting me come out and join you. Yeah. yeah, it'll be good. So this happened on November 14th of 1990. This was a DC-9-32. So the 32 variant of the DC-9 was the longer version of the DC-9. This had the tail number India-Alpha Tango Juliet Alpha. This was a flight from Milan's Linate Airport to Zurich, Switzerland. Linate is actually the smaller airport in Milan. They now have Milan Malpensa, which is the larger airport of Milan. And now Nick's Italian accent comes out strongly. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. The captain for today's flight was Rafael Liberti. He was 47 years old. He had 10,193 hours total, of which 3,194 hours were on the DC-9. So he was relatively experienced on the airplane and in general. The first officer, on the other hand, was Massimo de Fraia. He was 28 years old. He had 831 hours total. Oh, wow. Of which 621 of those hours were on the DC-9. Oh. Wow. Entirely as a first officer. So he only had 210 wow, hours yeah. by the time he started on the DC-9. Wow. Basically. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. The crew flew together the day before the accident flight. They were actually regularly paired on the airplane with the airline. The crew then had over 15 hours of rest time at a hotel in Milan before having to report for duty on the day of the accident flight at 1 p.m. They flew a round trip from Milan to Frankfurt. They then were to fly the accident leg to Zurich. They departed on the accident leg from Milan at 6.36 p.m. from runway 36 right. The first officer was the pilot flying, while the captain was the pilot monitoring for this flight. The flight had 40 passengers and 6 crew. The flight reached its cruising altitude of 20,000 feet. Two minutes later, the flight crew began planning their approach to Zurich. They listened to the latest weather at Zurich and believed that they would be landing on runway 28. They then listened to the ATIS, or Automated Terminal Information System, and were informed that runway 14 was in use at Zurich. They then discussed doing either a right or left circling approach for runway 28 anyway. 
So they would approach runway 14 and then circle either to the left around to the opposite end. Well, yeah. 28 two and then two circle eight, to 14, yeah. 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 So they they started planning for this, but ultimately the air traffic controller gave the flight vectors to line up for the approach to runway 14 and then instructed the flight to fly the instrument landing system approach, the ILS. At 7 p.m. in one second, the first officer stated that they would fly a Category 2 approach, and the captain agreed. These categories for these ILS approaches have to do with visibility and their minimums, what the airplane is capable of doing, depending on the weather conditions and how accurate it can bring the airplane. Oh, the equipment on board as well. Right, and the equipment on board. So this airplane is only capable of a Category 2 at maximum. Category 3 these days is kind of the typical maximum for most airliners, which is really high. And then they have, uh, I mean, zero visibility landing capabilities these days. Cat 3C, which, yeah. Well, yeah. Cat 3C is zero visibility completely. Right. And that's nuts to me. I, I mean, <laughs> well, that would be I can a little tell bit you that A specific airline that I'm familiar with, they don't allow it. So mm-hmm. 3B is the maximum, which means they still have to have some sort of visibility. I mean, yeah. basically the airplane lands itself, but yeah. Usually anyway. with most airlines, it's like 150, 200 foot minimum. Something like that. That could be visibility. lower, but but it, it, there still needs to be some visibility, meaning you can't just be landing and not see the runway. So. Right, right. The crew then discussed setting the navigation aids for the approach. As the aircraft was flying abeam Zurich, so parallel to Zurich and parallel to what their approach would be, but in the opposite direction, the captain stated, quote, We are by Cloton, flight level 9-0. He is bringing us in high, end quote. So, Cloton is one of their waypoints along their route, and they were at 9,000 feet at the time, and he felt that that was really high for where they were along their flight path and their approach. 7.02 p.m. and 28 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to descend to 6,000 feet. 7.02 p.m. and 50 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 325 degrees. At 7.04 p.m. and 32 seconds, the captain stated, the outer marker is at... 1,200 feet. It can be verified by 3.8 nautical miles from Cloton, Rhine at 5.6 nautical miles. So this is all kind of confusing, but the gist is he's stating the outer marker point, which is along the ILS, you have an outer marker, a middle marker, and an inner marker. There are points along your approach where it checks to make sure that you're, you know, dead on the approach. Where you're supposed to be, yeah. And that outer marker is the furthest from the threshold of the three. So he was stating that the outer marker, they should be at 1,200 feet in, in altitude. altitude. In altitude, that is. And then 3.8 nautical miles from Cloton and 5.6 nautical miles from Rhine. So they don't necessarily have to be in line with those points. That's just the distance from those VORs is what they actually are in this case. And that's 1,250 feet above ground. Yes, it is above ground in this case. It is case, above though. ground because the airport's altitude is like 1,400 feet. Yeah, something like MSL? that. Yeah, it's got to be yeah. above ground. Yeah, yeah, it's above ground in this case. 7.05 p.m. and 15 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight another heading change, and the captain acknowledged. 7.05 p.m. and 32 seconds, the navigation system successfully identified the ILS for runway 14, so it picked up the signal from the instrument landing system. 7.06 p.m. and 20 seconds, the air traffic controller gave the flight clearance for the approach, instructions to turn to a heading of 110, and a descent instruction to 4,000 feet. The captain acknowledged the instructions, but mistakenly read back a heading of 120. The first officer caught this and was confused. It confused him. But the captain informed the first officer of the instructions, at which time the first officer called out radio approach, quote-unquote. So they were now planning for their instrument landing approach, which uses a radio system but for navigation. did the first officer... He corrected the captain, right? I couldn't find a clarification on this. Ultimately, this is not very consequential anyways. Okay. The heading no. is not consequential. Okay. Oh, sometimes it is. That's why I'm asking. It is. <laughs> right, it right. Is, it does not matter in this case. Okay. No. I would tell there, you We have talked was. about crashes where it was a deciding factor. Right, right. So I'm just making sure. Yep, this, no. this 10 degrees is, is not. Okay. No. no. At that time, the flight was descending through 5,000 feet. The flaps were then set to 15 degrees. The captain then stated, quote, captured low, captured glide path, capture... So we're on the localizer a little off track, but end quote. 
That's literally what he said. That's really but confusing. But this was all translated, mind you, because uh, this was all in Italian. And that's mm-hmm. not even what we translated it as. That's what the history of flight read. Right. I translated it differently with my Italian knowledge, limited as it may be. I could at least translate that. So when I read it later, it'll be different. The gist is, is that he they was got stating the glide path. he was stating out loud that they had captured the glide the, the slope. The glide slope, path. yeah. They were a little off, but I mean, they're they're there. And the glide slope, for those who need reminding, is the three degree angle that leads you basically directly to the threshold. And at Zurich, it was three degrees. It does vary a little bit depending on the airport. And terrain. I'm going to interrupt a second yes. because my yeah. son does exactly what I do. When he talks, he has to use his hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very Italian. I, even if I'm driving and if it's really animated, I like go to the steering wheel and I have to use both hands while I'm on Bluetooth talking to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> so you learn to drive with your <laughs> It's Italian, isn't it? Yeah. This is, in this case, it's the three degrees down to the threshold of the runway. And it also gives them a lateral position, so they're positioned left to right. Left, right, up, down. You have a narrow beam that you're trying to follow straight to the threshold. Right. That's kind of the point. Fascinating yes. equipment that actually is relatively old by now, but it, it still is, is yeah. in use because it's such a very Super good... Super accurate. Very good. And it's very simple. So, I mean, Don't why fix... change something if it works really well yeah. and it's very simple? Don't change it when it works. Yep. Don't fix what's not broken. Exactly. The flight then descended through 4,000 feet along the approach. The captain then noted that there was a Finnair flight, which is the Finnish airline, a Finnair flight just ahead of them, and instructed the first officer to reduce their speed to 150 knots to prevent getting too close to avoid a, quote, go around, end quote, is what he stated. So he noted that there was an airplane right ahead of them. He could see it. And he was like, slow down. We're getting too close. Don't have to go around. The crew then discussed for a time icing issues, and there wasn't. Chegacho, I believe, is exactly what was said. Chegacho. Yeah, Chegacho. Flaps were then set to 25 degrees. The captain then reiterated the outer marker information of 1,250 feet and four nautical miles from the threshold. The approach controller then instructed the flight to change frequencies to the tower controller. The captain acknowledged the instruction. So they haven't gotten to the outer marker yet. Correct. Okay. That's at 1,200 feet. Right. Well, that's why I'm asking. Is like, yes, they're clearly too high at this point, but I just want to reiterate, they have not reached that point yet. They have yet. not reached that point yet. Okay. We'll talk a lot about that later. A lot. Yes. The autopilot was then disconnected. The airplane then suddenly went from negative 2 degrees pitch nose down to 5.4 degrees nose up very quickly. I mean, it... it it's not. This isn't an enormous change in pitch per se, but it was enough when this airplane is at speed. This was pretty quick. This decreased the descent rate from 1,100 feet per minute to 190 feet per minute, and this was in a matter of, I think it was like all of a second. Oh. So it was, it was pretty quick. 11 seconds later, the radio altimeter made a brief sound of pip, 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 which indicated 200 feet above ground. The captain then stated, quote, hold on, let's try to, end quote, at that moment, the airplane struck the tops of the trees before descending into the trees, striking one of the trees hard, shearing the right wing from the aircraft completely, causing it to immediately roll over to the right, inverting just before striking a hillside at 7.11 p.m. and 18 seconds. They crashed into the northern slope of the Stadlerberg at an altitude of 1,660 feet above sea level. The airplane immediately broke up on impact and a large fireball was seen, and the wreckage burned for actually quite some time. All 46 on board, unfortunately, perished in this accident. Hmm. Happened fast. It happened very, very fast. Miranda's confused. So now there's a lot of things that I have left out. This investigation was performed by the Aircraft Accident Investigation Bureau, or the AAIB of Switzerland, with the assistance of the Italian Ministry of Transport as the state of aircraft registration, and the NTSB as the state of manufacture as well as McDonnell Douglas and Alitalia, somewhat obviously, and not as obviously the AAIB of the UK, since they were the nearest facility to read the black boxes. Oh, I guess that makes sense. Which were found. Spoiler. Investigators weren't able to go on scene immediately since the blaze was raging through the forest, so they started with what they could, which was interviewing air traffic control. The controller reported that the flight seemed normal, and all was well. All their calls were normal, there was nothing amiss. Upon reviewing the radar recording, investigators saw that the flight was consistently too low by about 1,200 feet for the approach as early as 5 minutes 
before the impact and demanded to know why the controller didn't say anything. Yeah, that's a little concerning. His response was simple. I was juggling six flights, plus Flight 404 reported that they caught the glide slope, so why would their altitude need to be monitored? I guess that's true. Yeah. When asked why the minimum safe altitude warning didn't go off in the control center, the controller responded again simply, it wasn't installed yet. At this point, this system had already been installed in the U.S. for 10 years. Wow. So this seemed really outdated. I mean, Zurich was a pretty modern airport and is usually, it's one of the big ones in Europe, but yeah, they didn't have this installed yet where it would warn them if an airplane was too low, low, below the minimum safe altitude of the MSA. Investigators immediately came to suspect something was wrong with the ILS. Good assumption. So they had it shut down immediately and for testing. Mm. Well, I mean, if something's wrong with it, you don't want more planes crashing because of it. Yep. Yep. In the meantime, they were able to finally access the wreckage, which one investigator said in an interview was horrific, and the only things that were immediately identifiable were the engines and landing gear. I have a question. Uh Mm Uh-huh. I'm probably going to get to this later. I realize that. But it popped into my brain. In the cockpit, did any warning go off that they were too low? We'll talk about this in a bit. Oh, I will Christy's face talk about goes, that. uh, <laughs> shut up, Miranda. Well, because, I mean, I, I realize you probably left a lot of this out, yes. but there was like, the autopilot went off and pretty soon after that they crashed. So it's like, I, they I, had to be low enough at one point that the EGBWS had to go off, right? There like, was a very large, correct. there's a very large portion of this that I left out on purpose. We'll get there. Okay. Well, early, that was early GPWS back then, right? Yeah. So well, yeah, especially on still this, gone. especially on the DC nine. Yeah. I mean, this was nineteen ninety. So, on a lot of the the newer ones like the Airbus and everything, it wasn't. It Which, was a lot less primitive. But on this DC nine, it was pretty primitive. I don't know if we defined that in that conversation, but that is the ground proximity <clears throat> warning system that we are discussing. Yes. An explosion on board, though not truly a suspicion at any point, was ruled out as there was no evidence to support that theory. Damage to surrounding trees and the wreckage location revealed that the plane struck in a level attitude and the trees sheared off the right wing, causing the plane to roll to the right since the left wing had more lift since it was still attached. Makes sense. It was at this point that the black boxes were found and were sent to the UK for analysis. I don't have a whole lot before we come back to those, only that when the overnight testing of the ILS wrapped up, it came to light that everything was functioning normally. Oh, well, then it's a plane problem or it's a crew problem. Uh Uh-huh. Now for the black boxes, which were, to say the least, mildly disappointing. The FDR was outdated compared to what investigators were used to looking at and only recorded 10 parameters. And those 10 parameters didn't reveal anything. Oh, that's helpful. Everything was fine. Engines were operating up until impact. Flaps were working properly, unlike last episode. But the altitude track showed that the crew had a smooth descent as if they were on the glide slope. Just a thousand-ish feet too low. So we have a graph of this on our website. The dotted line in the middle shows a three-degree path, and then you'll also see their flight path and the impact into the mountain. Oh, yeah. They're they're too low. They're too low. Way too low. The CVR was even more disappointing. It turns out that the crew wasn't wearing their headsets and were making radio calls through the cockpit microphone. So that was the only microphone recording anything, and the quality of that microphone is less than satisfactory. The recording was so incredibly noisy, and investigators couldn't just do what we do and do some noise reduction in Adobe Audition. They sent it back and asked that the noise be removed, which takes time. In the meantime, investigators began wondering what would lead the crew to be consistently below the glide slope. Was something maybe wrong with the altimeter? Investigators pulled the altimeter from the wreckage and found that it was a very outdated altimeter called a drum pointer altimeter that was known for being misread all the time. How? We have a picture of it on our website for reference, but I will also explain. Unlike many steam gauge altimeters that have one hand for thousands of feet and one hand for hundreds of feet, this altimeter was different. Instead of having a hand for thousands of feet, it had a drum. Now, on the Air Disasters episode, they depicted it as, like, old car odometers or tally counters where it would flick through numbers. What was depicted in the actual report is slightly different, where it's kind of a vertical dial that only shows two numbers at a time. So in the picture that we have on the website, you can see a four and a five, and they're somewhere in between, meaning they're at about 4,450-ish feet. But it takes a second looking at that to figure out what that means. Yeah, yeah. The reason it would get misread was when the hundreds hand covered part of the drum. 
Does that say 6,000 feet or 5,000 feet? Does that say 17,000 feet or 11,000 feet? Do you get the idea? This was so prevalent of a problem that NASA had published five different studies about the misreading altimeters, which can be summarized in the following five points. Quote, Misreading of drum pointer altimeters occurs often. Several glances of the altimeter are necessary to assimilate all the information that is available. The pilot can recognize the relative needle position with a short glance, as in 0.1 seconds, whereas reading the drum requires 0.6 seconds and is more difficult than reading a needle. As a result, the drum is consulted less frequently. During an approach, the altimeter is consulted about 3 to 6% of the time. The NASA studies show that the pilot surveyed thought they had monitored the altimeter during 20 to 25% of the approach. End quote. NASA also surveyed 169 U.S. National Airlines 727 pilots and found, quote, of the 169, 137 said they had already misread an altimeter. Oh, well, that's nice. 134 had observed another pilot misreading an altimeter. 85% of both groups explained that they had made these observations more than once. A surprisingly high amount of misreadings occurred during approach. End quote. Additional comments from the surveyed pilots include, quote, This altimeter takes more concentration than should be necessary to read accurately. The small drum window is a complication on the instrument, and it is quite small, often requiring a double look and diverting attention from the needle. Other instruments require only a single point of visual attention to comprehend and do not divert, slow, or complicate a smoothly flowing scan. Misreads always seem to occur at a lower altitude when attention is split between more activities. The more stressful situations produced more misreads. A quick look after being distracted can usually induce a reading of a thousand feet off if the barrel drum is halfway between thousands, end quote. The only way to know for sure if this is what happened would be to hear the CVR, which investigators got back all cleaned up. Real quick before you continue, how big is this instrument compared to what they're used to looking at? I mean, it's a pretty normal dial, so I mean, it's... In size, it's probably tennis ball size. Three inch. Yeah, uh, three inch. Three and a half inch. Yeah, that's, yeah. and the drum is even smaller than that, right? Because yeah. it's yep. in the dial. So, yeah, that's not great. And you have an entire, basically, dashboard of instruments to be looking at. And like that's these. Tiny. Yeah. It's easy to make that mistake, yes. as NASA proved. So they listened all the way through the CVR, and they heard, for one, the captain being overbearing. So I didn't read through the CVR through this part as much, but at least in the air disasters episode, they depicted it as you need to be slowing down. They're going to tell you to slow down. Oh, look, see, they told you to slow down. Oh, that's great. Uh Uh-huh. With a pilot, you're also with a a younger pilot who has a lot less hours than you, who's trying to fly the aircraft. There is one thing coming up that is going to make you extremely mad. Oh, good. I I will warn before we get there. (laughs) I'm already not very happy. Just you wait. Another thing they heard was that the crew changed the nav receiver to the first nav receiver instead of number two because it seemed that the first officer's glide slope indicator wasn't working when set to nav two, but the captain's, which was set to nav one, worked, so they both set theirs to nav one. Okay, fine, good decision. I don't fault you for that. Then the captain said something that the investigators thought most interesting. Captured loke. Captured glide path, so we're in the captured beam. A bit shifted, but... So they had definitely had the glide slope. They didn't just misread an altimeter somewhere. So they kept listening. The captain discussed the outer marker, which is the last point that confirms they are on the ILS. Flaps extended to 25 degrees. The captain said the outer marker is at 1,250 feet. First officer set flaps to 50, and the captain continued, saying 3.8 almost 4 miles out, still referring to the outer marker. The first officer paused before saying, Didn't we pass it? That's cap- not even the thing that's going to make you mad. The captain responded... I know, but the thing I said earlier... Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. They caught this. The captain responded, no, it hasn't changed yet. Probably referencing the blue light that would come on when passing the outer marker. He continued saying, it's giving me seven, which means it showed them as still seven miles from the runway, which was correct. ATC radioed saying, speed now as convenient. Four miles behind a DC-9, contact tower 118.1. And the captain responded by saying, 118.1, goodbye. Yeah, that's fairly normal. Yeah. And here's where air disasters got it wrong, so listen carefully. Also, Miranda rage warning. Oh, good. The captain said, the captain, mind you, said, that doesn't make sense to me. The first officer said, me neither. 
The captain said, pull up, pull up, pull up, pull up, which investigators took to mean fly level until we reached the outer marker. And then the first officer said, go around, and was probably looking at the altimeter when he said this. The captain responded, no, no, no. And then something like, can't you keep the glide? You can handle it. The first officer said, yes. The radio altimeter warning went off and was ignored by the crew. The captain began saying, wait, let's try to st-, and then there were sounds of impact. Still a little confused about the whole sequence of things, but yes. Yes. Yeah. It's it is a little well, confusing. They clearly were lower than they were supposed to be. Yes. I just don't Which... know where. Like, was it the first officer that ended because they he thought they had passed the first the outer marker yeah, that they are lower. Slope, if you're on a glide slope, it doesn't matter. Right. They crossed below <clears throat> their four thousand feet before they were supposed to. The point where and... they would have picked up the ILS was after they had already crossed 4,000 feet, and that's why they were supposed to hold 4,000 feet, is it was supposed to collect the ILS at the glide slope point, the top of the glide slope, from 4,000. So they they were below the glide slope from the very beginning. Right. They were below the glide slope from the very beginning because they descended through their 4,000-foot hold. Then how did? why did they think they had the glide slope then? So We'll get there. uh, Because I'm assuming that's part of the problem. This is a whole nother issue. But also, when you say go around, there's probably good reason. Yeah. I don't know. That doesn't... So, items of note. One, the crew was confused about the outer marker. Two, the captain prevented a go-around attempt. Three, the ground proximity warning system did not sound. Yeah, that... uh, What the heck's with that? Okay. So, there's a lot to tackle. Let's talk about it. (laughs) Let's talk about it. Let's start with how crews determine whether or not they're on a glide slope. In this particular aircraft... Is it the flag? No. Oh. Well, sort of. Oh. In this particular aircraft, this is shown as an arrow on the right side of the heading selector indicator, or HSI. The arrow shows as higher up if you're under the glide path, lower if you're above it, and right in the middle if you're on it, vertically. So this would be a person who's on the glide path? Correct. That's how they tell vertically. Horizontally was not a problem, so I'm not going to talk about it. The advantage with older instruments like this is you can actually tell what they showed at the time of impact. During impact, the needles and indicators slap the background of the instrument, leaving what's known as a slap mark. So when investigators found the HSI, they looked at the arrow, which showed they were on the glide path. Investigators were dumbfounded at this point. Nothing seemed to be wrong. So what could cause a fault with the glide slope indicator that wouldn't be obvious on the instrument? To answer this, we have to talk about where the data for the glide slope comes from. Within the front of the plane are two navigational receivers, which receive the data from the radio emitting source. We know that the crew is using NAV1, since NAV2 had an apparent fault. So they opened up NAV-1 from the wreckage and didn't see anything obvious. But it's also pretty hard to tell since you know there was impact damage to contend with. Right. What might happen to it? Well, it needs electricity. What could happen with electricity? You could have a short. Let's try shorting it. So investigators performed a simulation test and intentionally shorted the NAV-1 receiver. To their surprise, nothing in the cockpit showed a fault. Nothing said there was anything wrong with the NAV-1 receiver. There was no indication that it shorted and wasn't transmitting a signal. More importantly, the default position of the glide slope indicator with a shorted nav receiver was... On the glide path? On the glide path. Vertically. It would go to dead side. Yeah. Who the f*** designed that? This nav receiver was a King KNR 630, and as an unmonitored receiver, unlike most receivers today, it does not monitor the signal sent to the HSI, and it didn't warn the flight crew if the signal is interrupted. In the humble opinion of investigators interviewed in the Air Disasters episode, this system never should have been put in planes and should have been banned ages ago. Well then, that's a a big opinion there. Yeah. Yes. But McDonnell Douglas was aware of this issue, so much so that they had sent communication to all DC-8, DC-9, C-9, and MD-80 operators, including Alitalia, and hosted a seminar in 1985, which Alitalia had sent representative pilots to but the information never made it back to the line crew members, and the accident crew had no idea this condition for possible false indications existed. So, before we continue, I'm sorry, I realize we keep stopping. So, you said that there was something wrong with NAV 2? There wasn't. Was it just that they didn't like what they were seeing? Yep. Correct. So, NAV 2 was the one that was working then? Uh Uh-huh. Correct. Awesome. 
Uh-huh. Confirmation bias. They took the one that showed them on the glides, the glide slope. But yeah. they, they had no idea that it could be faulty. That's true. I'm just so saying. So I don't, I don't fault their decision? So the whole thing here, that morning the airplane, a whole other crew had taken the airplane on another trip. Yeah. And they had written up that NAV-2 actually was not functioning correctly. Oh. And NAV-1 also had an issue. So they actually replaced both. They replaced both before the flight, and what this crew was doing is they were actually running a test. They were instructed, because the weather was supposed to be good in Zurich, to fly a Category 2 approach to certify those two systems as functioning were working properly on the airplane because it was clear weather. They could have aborted and, and such. So to prove that the system was working on this passenger leg, they were to run a Category 2 approach. Maybe we should clarify something, though. Yes. It sounds like, because I was paying attention to what time it happened. You know, yeah. as you say, visibility was good. It right. was obviously at night. It was They probably night. did not see the, the mountain or whatever the trees that were in front of them. Right. But the concern was, and we'll talk about that, too, because that's there's a black hole effect that happened to them. That's a whole other thing. So, but the whole thing was, they knew that the weather in Zurich would be decent, so they could run the Category 2 approach as, a, as a simulated approach. Oh, okay. To make sure that the equipment was working. But the issue was, when the airplane was to return to Milan, the weather was going to be... Not it was going great. to require a Category 2 approach. So okay. they had to do this for this approach... To make sure it to was make working sure it was for functioning the trip back. Before the trip back. That was not discussed in air disasters at all, at by all. the way. So they were in this situation entirely as a simulated... So it, in a way, also, that's... the the. Testing system was a failure, so the way the the company had correct set it up. So there's a lot of things here that went completely wrong. Yes, yeah, uh-huh. so it was kind of a perfect storm situation. So my question is, if they replaced both Nav One and Nav Two, and they were showing different things, mm-hmm. and the the pilots knew this, mm-hmm. I don't. I get. I guess the point is, is they didn't know it could short out, so yeah. they picked the wrong one. But right. I feel like it would be weird to be like, oh, these. Both are different. Okay. Well, well, I mean, they probably assumed they were both reinstalled. Maybe Nav 2 has an actual fault. Let's uh, use Nav 1. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because it's obviously... Bias yeah. Thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the NTSB was not aware that this particular setup would not flag or tell the crew that the Nav 1, that any Nav receiver was shorting. So uh, they made the appropriate recommendation as they are wont to do. This simulation actually answered more questions than just this, though. In the same simulation, they flew the plane, just as the crew did. They found that a shorted-out nav receiver also deactivated the ground proximity warning system. Oh, no! no. Yeah. And there was no warning or fault or anything about this. Oh, no! Oh, my God, when you talk about a perfect storm. Yeah! (laughs) It really was. Oh. It really was. The other question this simulation answered was in regards to the attempted go-around. If the captain hadn't stopped the first officer, would a go-around have saved them? Tragically, the answer is yes. Yeah, because they had plenty of time when he called go-around. It was going to be close. It It was marginal, but he did the right thing, and then the captain stopped him, and they did test it at the exact moment in simulations of doing the go-around. At that moment when he called for a go-around, if they had gone around, how far would they have cleared? 399 feet. No, that's, that's plenty. It was plenty, <laughs> yeah. but it was still close. Yeah, but so yeah. if you can't do that now, right? Like you can't stop a go around from no. happening once someone yeah, calls go around, right? Many airlines by that point had already so let's made talk- that a, a you know a, an illegal move, basically. So let's talk a little well, bit. Well, we're Italian. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you, it was actually not in the procedures. They were allowed to negate a go around, still at the time. So, investigators delved into the crew resource management. I was going to say, CRM, not a thing, apparently. Of the crew, and found that throughout the flight, the captain admonished the first officer repeatedly, and his poor opinion of the first officer contributed to him preventing the go-around attempt. It had been known in the industry to this point that there is a considerable resistance to go-arounds, mainly because you have to fill out paperwork, justifying your reasoning for going around. Because it usually causes a delay. It was seen as a failure, a lack of professional competence, and even loss of prestige. Or just a safety thing uh-huh. so you don't crash. According to Alitalia, crews mm-hmm. do not have to justify go-arounds, but there's still that mentality of, I messed up. This mentality does not exist now. You can always go around. 
Always. Yes. And you can't negate a go around. Nope. That that's gone. <laughs> that is so you can't gone. say, oh no, you can't do that. It's like no, if someone calls a go around, you're going around. Unless it's a safety reason, but that's very you know, Rare. I don't I that's can't like, really see if many... like an engine's not working properly, maybe. I, I don't I don't even know how that would be I can't see many situations when no. a call for a go around could be negated negated for any reason yeah and that's all i got okay okay then we're gonna take a small brick break and then we'll be back with conclusions findings there is actually findings and then there's conclusions which are the causes got it (laughs) causes yeah okay break it break and we're back we're back findings okay we're gonna do some findings they found that the nav receiver number one, which was in use during the approach, type King KNR6030, was apparently not delivering an output signal. All four nav indications gave an on-glide indication, without a warning flag appearing. The gist of the number one receiver wasn't functioning, and there was nothing that yeah. told them that. Yeah. And unfortunately, it told them they were on the glide path. This was a problem. They found that the possibility of such a failure on the nav equipment in use has been known since 1984, so it had been six years that this had been a known issue. Again, I hate to say it, but, and this is going to be very blunt, but all FARs, I mean, and especially ADs and all these are written in blood. Yep. Yep. And they had to wait till somebody died in order to do something. It is unfortunate. That's kind of how the industry works. In some cases, you can kind of see how it's an issue that wasn't foreseen. In this case, it was Definitely. an issue that was foreseen. It could have been prevented. But in some cases, there are things, you know, unforeseen things happen that were preventable. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of comes with the territory. There's a lot of uh, every time you make changes, big changes in aviation, even small changes, they can be very impactful. Yeah, but this one being that it was six years before, they should have acted way faster. Yes. Oh, not, yeah. Not waited six years to then. I mean, it's a known problem. It, Correct. should have been addressed. So that leads into the next one, which is they found that Alitalia was informed by the aircraft manufacturer about the possibility of these failure possibilities in the years 1984 and 1985. They were unknown to the crew flight 404. And why that happened is because what Alitalia did was, like you said, they had sent the crews. They sent three pilots. Yeah, three, three pilots to this meeting with the manufacturer to learn about this. But then the information was never passed on in Alitalia. So it never Which, was understood by the rest of the crews. That baffles me. Would be a thing. Yeah. And why they sent three flight crews? I mean, okay, yes, it's needed to do their job, but also they should have been sending company engineers, yeah, company and, representatives, yes, yeah. and representatives to this meeting. Other because... than just pilots, because if you need, so to let me change... tell you about Italy. It's all about nepotism, and this this crew probably said, "Hey, I'm going on vacation in the United States." Hey, let's yeah. Go. Yeah. Okay, maybe see that's that. me being a little sarcastic. Yeah, uh, yeah. But still. <laughs> they found that the altimeters used in the aircraft were the so-called drum pointer type. On these, the danger of misreading is particularly great. We'll talk again a little bit about those in a bit. They found that the crew allowed the aircraft to descend below the outer marker height of 1,248 feet before passing the outer marker. They found that during the entire approach, there was no GPWS warning in the cockpit. All these are pretty clear cut. I am skipping a lot, by the way, because there was a lot having to do with weather conditions unnecessary. They found that according to other pilots, the approach and runway lighting could be seen during the approach on the instrument landing system. However, they also found that on the accident profile, the runway could be seen until seven nautical miles on the ILS. Then it is obscured by the Stadlerberg, which is the mountain. At night, a, quote, black hole, unquote, effect. So, but if you're yeah, on the glide was... slope, how can something be in the way? <clears throat> right, exactly. When they're on the glide slope, they're saying that all the other pilots could see the runway the whole time. Because you were actually on the glide slope. But with the pilot's profile, with this air, this flight's they profile, so they were so low that once they got to seven nautical miles, they lost sight of the runway because the mountain created a black hole in the dead of night. There was no lights on this mountain. And, and it was another, not... Another red flag that they probably could have... They probably could have, yeah. Been like, ding, 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 something's wrong. Yeah. Right. I might have been tired, too. And, Who knows what the reasons are. And right. this yeah. mountain was not required to be lit. It was far enough away from the airport that it did not have to have the lighting on top of the mountain to say, hey, I'm here, I'm a mountain. Right. So they had the black hole effect, which basically blocked the airport from view, and they didn't catch it, and they were too low. 
they found that the Stadlerberg is not equipped with obstacle lighting. There you go. Just like you, you said. To discover that, yeah. They also found that Runway 14 is not equipped with precision approach lighting, or pappies. They also found not even Vassy. That's, so that's interesting. They didn't have any kind of glide slope lighting at all, approach lighting. Hmm. They wouldn't so. have they couldn't see them. Right, yeah, they couldn't that, see them true. with the black hole effect, <laughs> so, so <laughs> what was it really worth anyways? That's but, why I didn't talk about but it. But they, they like <laughs> throwing stuff in there that's like, just so you know, you could change this. It's actually amazing right. that they, don't, they didn't have pappy or Vassy lights because... Well, and it is an ICAO requirement nowadays. And... Quote, Switzerland made the ICAO aware of this condition. Even though it was required at the time. I don't know what that means. (laughs) It was interesting. There must have been a no time or there must have been a... Yeah. Something of that effect. Or something. Yeah. They found that the go-around commenced shortly before the accident by the co-pilot was immediately stopped by the captain. Yeah. In the Air Disasters episode, they depicted the captain actually putting his hand on the throttles to stop the first officer from going around i don't know we don't, don't know, know if, that, if that's that what actually happened. happened of course we wouldn't know because there's no like cameras cameras or anything but and i really hope that wouldn't be the case yeah we will never know all right the world may never know they found that the pilot's cockpit work did not comply throughout with alitalia's operational procedures so alitalia's procedures that they had in place for the the cockpit crew the flight deck crew they did not comply with either so there was breakdowns. Nice. Even they still had some amount of crew resource management in their procedures that wasn't being followed by this flight crew. Awesome. Unfortunately. And that's it for findings. Oh hey. That's what I short. The accident was caused by false indication of VHF nav unit number one in the aircraft. Probable altimeter misreading by the pilot in command. No ground proximity warning system warning in the cockpit. Pilots not aware of the possibility of incorrect indications in the nav equipment in use without flag alarm. Inadequate failure analysis by the pilots. Non-compliance by the pilots with basic procedural instructions during the approach. Unsuitable cooperation between the pilots during the approach. The co-pilots initiate a go-around procedure aborted by the pilot in command. And the approach controller not observing the leaving of the cleared altitude of 4,000 feet before the final approach point. Right. It's a perfect storm, needless to say. Yes. It always is, though. So instead of creating, like, a probable cause, they just literally bullet point listed all of those things as being causal to the accident. Because if any one of those things wasn't there, then if they were just on the glide slope, everything would have been fine. Right. If ATC noticed, if they had actually gone around, like, all of these things, if one of those hadn't happened, they probably would have been fine. Right. If there wasn't a short in the nav that they decided to use. If it told them there was a short. Yeah. So one of my questions for Al is, how do you know now if a nav receiver shorts? Well, it tells you. Yeah. Or the pilots can detect it. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of... a lot of. Uh, Does it have like a something. warning flag or... Depends on the Airbus, of course. We, uh, the, the airplane. The Airbus. <laughs> yeah. The Airbus pretty much tells you, I've got a problem. It's, it's a very smart airplane, the A320 that is, that I work on. And the 737 generally have flags or other... Way to indicate it's a little more archaic of a system, even yeah. the newer one. But yeah, there's always a way that tells you when there is a malfunction on almost every system. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, now that we're getting newer and newer airplanes, though, for the most part, it's all electronic. Yeah, they monitor. Up. I mean, failures just... on monitors, that's what it is yeah, in, in exactly. most of these airplanes. And generally, it's nice for us because it tells us when there is a failure of, yeah. of a unit and we just go in and take care of it. How yep. long does it take to swap out an AV receiver? Not a lot at all. That's good. But I don't know what the testing might have been because in reality, so to the, the replace the box is, is just a couple of minutes. But I imagine there was a test to be done. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I, there, there's where I am a little confused because I imagine if you change a nav receiver, generally, you know, there might be some testing to be done. But then again, I don't know that's the receiver. I don't know how to tell you procedure. I don't know, but. We, uh, almost every single airplane nowadays has comparative systems, so they don't just fly off of one to try to compare. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, <clears throat> if you were to change out a nav receiver, what would be the testing procedure before letting the airplane go? I don't know that one. I'd have to look it up. I think oh, okay. sometimes <laughs> they have ground equipment that okay. simulates simulates that so you can test it. Sometimes yep. it's, a, it's a flight like that one that be tested, but then it, it, it has certain parameters, I imagine. I, I, I cannot remember right off the top of my head. But I can tell you from where I used to work, actually, we had specific pieces of equipment 
that were IFR testing equipment. They right. literally had all these antennas, and they put them outside the airplane, and they run through the airplane through basically a simulated approach, just sitting in the hangar. Mm-hmm. And it tells, it feeds information to it from the this little simulator device on through the antennas, and it'll tell you if there's a fault in and the again, cockpit. Here's the other thing is I, I'm wondering, since they knew that unit was defective in the maintenance manual, there should have been something mentioned about that. And I cannot imagine that you do not test that equipment intentionally for that. Yeah. At sometimes and they didn't have the test. So they might have just changed the box, signed it off, and sent it on its way. Maybe never did any testing, which would have been maybe what should have happened. Because almost every single piece of equipment that I put in, I have to test it somehow. I don't just put in a new radio and not at least go up in the cockpit and test it. Make sure it's working. Call, <laughs> call the tower. <laughs> Listen to the aid. That's why I'm saying all these boxes, you know, generally have a test procedure. In, in, and that's why I wonder I'm wonder. i really surprised that this happened because they changed the box and they put in a box that obviously was defective. That happens, you know. and Or the, the defect was outside of the box, maybe in the wiring outside of the box. But you need to test it, and that's where I'm. I will. I will throw in my two cents and say something was failed. And I'm a mechanic, and, and I don't want to throw any mechanic under the bus because I know how hard it is. But somehow, maybe the procedure right. was not correct. My yeah. guessing is, yeah, maintenance manual or it was procedure flawed or something. Or, yeah, because you know any mechanic knows. I change a box. What's the test? You know, we go look at the test, and generally uh, do it. Yeah. We, we're very well aware that those are very important steps. So. Um, that's something that they didn't talk about. And I'm really right. surprised that that did not come up. And it doesn't even come up in the recommendations, which was curious to me about changes to these testing procedures or anything. Cause you know, this was such a side note, even in the report, I think they felt like everything else was really an issue more instead, more important yeah. and arguably yes, but also yeah, but that problem should have been problem, on the ground. It, right. Exactly. It would have Basically, if that hadn't been their period, right. the EGPWS would have worked. They would have realized. They also would have realized, no matter which nav they used, that they were they didn't catch the glide slope. Right. So right. it's it's like it's kind of weird. I agree that they didn't say anything. I mean, again, about, that, that testing. Yeah. You know, it, 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 that if that piece of equipment affects the e, uh, EGPWS, imagine that when you change it, you need to test, including the EGPWS. The, yeah, EGPWS. So if the EGPWS doesn't test, and I test them all the time, you know, on the airplane, and if it doesn't test, then you you probably need to look into that. You know, make right. a note at the very least there might be a deferral that you can do the EGPWS not not available, which probably would have degraded that airplane below cat two right you know somewhere maybe on a cat one at best you know right my guess is is maybe there was some kind of test they ran on the ground but they couldn't actually prove that it was category two ready so maybe there maybe it was just like a a request to the pilots to run a category two approach simulated approach maybe that's what it is is but then again they should have had a note that they did a test and that the the nav one had issues right I don't know. There's something there that doesn't jive. And, and I'm not yeah. going to, again, and I don't want to bash my profession because I think there's an enormous amount of excellent mechanic. And I, I wouldn't say that the mechanic made a mistake at all. I'm wondering if the problem was within the system or, or the procedure of changing this box. If they changed the box and didn't do any tests, especially when they changed both of right. them. You generally don't change two systems at once at the and same not do time. a bunch of tests. Right. Yeah, and of course, that's not you know this was 1990, maybe a slightly different way, but yeah. yeah. Nonetheless, and this was an older airplane in the DC-9. Yeah, this was also an older. This was an older DC-9 as well. So they said that most of the systems in this DC-9 specifically were older than the majority of the DC-9s in use. Yeah. Did I hear right that they changed both Nav One and Nav Two boxes? Yeah, but I'm just looking to see if they have anything about the process, the testing procedure, the procedure. Yeah. yeah. Because it wasn't what? in the analysis. Maybe it was in section one. Right. And again, you know, if there was two systems, again, we have we have some uh, safety in place that you cannot change two of the same system without ma- making major, especially changing if there's only two. Right. And not uh, run a bunch of tests and completely verify that, that you're uh, okay, especially because what if the problem was in those boxes and you change and the you know, problem is still there with the duo. Like I said, this one ended up being a complete disaster because I think that somehow something was failed. It was missed right there too. 
An opportunity was missed. So, Let's put it this way. That's the one. Here I'm going to read directly from the report what it says. After the flight from Frankfurt to Lenate, the pilot in command, the captain, made no entry in the technical logbook. The pilot in command explained the technical situation to the mechanic verbally. The failure had now been observed in the position Radio 1. So Radio 2 already had an issue, which was already in the maintenance book. They hadn't fixed that issue. It was already in there, which I could read that one later. But this one, now they're having an issue with Radio 1 as well. As a result of these observations, both VHF nav receivers were replaced. So this was between, actually, their... Frankfurt, so, their inbound in, in a five-minute job, because otherwise the airport yeah. probably would have been grounded. Yes. Or at the very least. And the crew were asked to make a simulated Category 2 approach to Zurich, so that the aircraft could that gain its full test. Category 2 status. For the return flight to Lenate, the weather situation indicated a tendency towards Category 2 conditions for the landing in Lenate. Section 1.16.1.2.5. Oh, boy. <laughs> Unit exchange in Lenate. Having landed after the flight from Frankfurt, the plane was parked on position 16 at Lenate. Two Alitalia employees changed both nav receivers for a King receiver KNR 6030, serial number 2256 in the nav system 1, and a Collins 51RV2B in the nav system 2. A self-test was conducted on both systems. Following this, both technicians checked the functioning of the equipment in the nav mode, in that they switched off the signals of the Linate VOR and that of the Linate localizer. Yeah, How- but that's a localizer, not glide slope. However, right. it was not possible to test the reception of the ILS glide slope signals due to the parking position of the aircraft. Mm. This is how the plane was released to service, with the status coupled approach check. This status could be proven after the accident as the status mode indicator was recovered. According to Alitalia procedures, the pilots are required to execute an automatic approach in weather conditions of Cat 1 or better so that the status coupled approach allowed can be achieved. Okay, so that answers exactly all the questions yeah. that, I was, that I was bringing up. So Thank there you, you go. Bringing that up. The procedure and, actually called for them to do this test in flight. So this yeah. was But the, the airplane test. was a Cat 1. And so yes. in a way, I will admit that the pilots definitely have a fault because they, they failed to fly a Cat 1 approach. Right. Correct. And they were they just stuck with flying a cat to approach when they should have never been flying a cat to approach because they stuck their eyes onto the glide slope and believed the glide slope, which they should have never believed because that's what they were testing. Yep, yep. Right. They should have flown the airplane as a cat one approach or even a visual approach. Right. They should have been I mean the conditions were good. Everybody else I think was flying mostly visual approaches that night. So they should have been able to fly but Again, I don't you know, yeah. I wasn't in the We car. don't know for know, sure. But... But, no, but uh, okay, I mean, so. that was a really good thank question. You for, thank and you we for found clarifying it. that. <laughs> yeah. because, a very good answer. I mean, uh, thank you. I, I, saw it, I saw it under a different <laughs> eye. That was good. You know, the maintenance eye, and I'm going, if they change this box, what was the test? And they did the test the best they could on the yeah. ground. Great. That's exactly probably the way the procedure was supposed to be run. And then the flight was supposed to be the confirmation for glide slope. And obviously, Something was amiss, and yeah. I think maybe there was also a misunderstanding by the pilots what the real procedure that they should have done before. Mm-hmm. They probably thought we should just shoot a cut through approach because we are clear to cut through. You know, we when we degrade, uh, downgrade an airplane, we need to have a specific sticker that we put in the cockpit and we tell them no auto land, cut through, cut one, whatever it is, so that the pilot is very well aware of the maximum, yeah, capability of the airplane, right? And they cannot obviously fly so you know right. i guess that the pilot maybe misunderstood that they should they would needed to do shoot a cat to approach and they just kind of stuck their head in a in a fly in the instrument panel and that was another failure that hopefully yeah they learned about and and maybe they reviewed because I, that's really unfortunate that that was another thing that could have been missed if they were very clear that mm-hmm. they should exactly. have not run a cat to approach they just should have just a done a regular approach while monitoring the glide slope, making sure that while they were looking at the runway, the glide slope was looking correctly. And again, without papi lights or vasi lights, you probably can't quite tell that either. Yeah, that's true. Again, 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These kids were not even born in 1990s. We were born in the 90s, but not just in not this, in 90s. Not in 1990, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, those were the times, man. No <laughs> cell phone, no internet. Yeah. We were dumb as sticks, and I gotta tell you, that was awesome. You know, ignorance was bliss back then. That's, That's right. That's when you first came to the States. 93. 93. Yeah. I was flying airplanes already. I started flying in 87. Wow. 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 Okay. 
Let's do some recommendations. Recommendations. And we'll talk about I also. Ha- I have some safety actions too. Yes, things that gonna, were done. I was gonna say we'll also talk about the things that actually did change. They recommended that the nav equipment, which does not have monitoring of the output signal, should not be used. <laughs> Period. There you go. In other words, just don't use this equipment because it doesn't show if there's a fault. Trash it now. Much the same. They recommend the drum pointer altimeter as fitted to the accident aircraft should not be used with immediate effect. Stop using these drum altimeters. Use something else. Yeah, because again, you know, they could have read it and then they very quickly realized that they were at the wrong altitude. Right. Maybe a go around would have been initiated much sooner. Right. Said, let's figure out what's going on. Something is wrong. Yep. Yep. They recommend that the GPWS should operate also in case of a nav failure. So the GPWS yeah. should not be tied directly to the nav system. It should be I don't know why it is to begin with. It, right. I thought it was just tied to the radio altimeter and that was it. Right. And in most cases, that's kind of how it works these days. Although it's a lot more digitized these days. Yeah, now you've got you know, GPS because it actually knows what's in front of you, not just what's below you. Yeah, it can tell directly by your position on Earth in the GPS with terrain data and obstacle data and all those things exactly where you are in relation to everything on Earth. So it doesn't even have to rely on the radio altimeter. Yes, but that's the enhanced GPWS. Exactly. I'm talking about just like the OG. Yes, yes. Yes, the OG <laughs> GPWS, yes. They recommend the flight procedures of an air transport company should ensure that a go-around, once started, cannot be stopped. Thank you. Thank you. Usually someone's making that decision for a safety reason. So it's like... And up in time, you just don't have time to think why. You know, the other person cannot cannot be told, I'm going around because, yeah, I was looking at this and somehow (laughs) I am wondering, you know, in the great scheme of things, this is going to be working. I'm not sure. Meanwhile, you have to send another thousand feet, you know, so... Exactly. That's why I think that the real reason is this, you know, you have the pilot says, ooh, something I don't like. I'm going around. Yeah, especially... I'll explain you when we're climbing why, you know? Or like figure it out. Figure Especially, out what's wrong. Right. Especially in this case, it was the pilot flying. Yeah. He he was the pilot who was he supposed to be... He has the authority to do that. Right. Well, and his he, eyes are actually monitoring the instrument, so maybe he did see something. Maybe yeah. Because well, I so think eerie. between both of them, they must have noticed that the altitude was too low. They have to have. I mean, that's well, why they, they started that the cap- saying that they there said was the captain issue. probably misread the altimeter. Exactly. Well, and, and the first officer was so focused on the glide slope that, you know... And then at some point, he did realize, especially, I mean, no, actually, because he initiated before the EGPW, or sorry. The his, radio uh, altimeter. radio altimeter went off. But he, he definitely did notice, and very likely, he glanced at the altimeter, and he probably saw the altimeter was too low. And he, without saying anything, that's what he said, let's go around, you know? Yeah. Here's mm. another one that I know did change, especially because Jeppesen provides most charts for places not in the United States. The FAA usually provides charts in the United States, but Jeppesen provides charting for most other major airports on Earth, and this I know changed in the Jeppesen charts. They recommend the approach charts in the route manual should show the horizontal terrain profile below the glide path. So when it shows a glide path, it should also show below that what the terrain is below their glide path. On airports like that one where it's a little too sketchy? So yeah, so it would have this terrain path like it shows there. Mm-hmm. below their actual glide path so you know oh hey there's a mountain mm-hmm. under me don't mess it up and give them ideas of altitudes well, and and you see it on some of the new ifr charts they actually yeah. really need because they actually colored and then you kind of pay attention yeah yeah what was that airplane that learjet that unfortunately no was it was a learjet that went down in san diego oh so they were trying to do a circle to land approach which had done before but because the terrain is really right wonky it's it's very it's a very touch and go uh and and they obviously that's what happened in out, unfortunately air blue 202 they uh-huh. were doing the circling approach and, and they, they descended they it up a real bad they descended below the minimum descent altitude for the circling approach they were below the minimum they were allowed to descend per the chart they went they did their turn they ended up way off course anyways but they were still below the terrain the whole time oh, that, that they that, should have been above well, they obviously, if they went outside, they were they're circling to land. Don't forget, it's, it's a visual maneuver. Yes, exactly. Meaning it brings you down to where you actually yeah. see the airport. you got to keep it in sight and land there. In that one, they were their visual to the airport was very marginal. They could see it, but it was marginal. It was the same thing, I think, when we talked about the oh, one. Oh, we've done so many of these. The one in Jamaica. Yeah, that yes. one too. The one in Jamaica was the same thing. It was another circling approach. It was at night. In and the they rain. could see in the, the rain. Air, it was in the rain. They could see the airport, but it was very marginal. They flew around 
and then they kind of lost sight of the airport. They were below the minimum descent altitude, and same thing happened. They they ran into the terrain. So the, well, and actually, I have uh, heard recently some people questioning this idea of circling to land approaches. Yeah, which, yeah I don't like it. Which, in general, it's a very sketchy. I know that some airports don't have other options, but it isn't. It I isn't still don't like option. it. Hmm. Yeah, it's not great. It's not a great option. Anyway. Okay. They recommend that the duties of the approach traffic controller should be expanded to include the task of warning in the event of an altitude undershoot of the minimum safe altitudes. In this respect, a warning system similar to that used in the USA, minimum safe warning system, which gives an automatic optical and acoustic warning when an aircraft undershoots an altitude should be added to the air traffic control equipment, and it was. It was. They recommend that the national and international operating instructions of the air traffic control should be adapted to modern technology much faster. So, in other words, that's kind of hand-in-hand hand with the last one. Yeah. Which is updating to these newer systems with the minimum safe altitude Yeah. warning, but also making sure that they're doing it kind of in conjunction with the rest of the world. Don't fall behind. Yes. Especially at these bigger airports that are very busy. They recommend that the installation of an area microphone recording system for the air traffic controller stations, similar to the aircraft CVR area mic, should be evaluated. So a lot of airports actually already had this in place and have it in place now where the audio is recorded. But I think what they're talking about in this case is a microphone that records even the conversations external to the radio calls at the air traffic control station. Interesting. Oh, just in case the pilot, the, the, uh, the air traffic controller said, noted the low altitude, do you think? I think in this case it's because they wanted to know if he was too distracted with something else going on uh, at his station. And wasn't saying it over the radio. So he wasn't paying attention to the altitude. I imagine they at least have, like, security cameras that could be used for that kind of verification. Uh, a lot these days, maybe. <laughs> well, even I mean, the cameras were used in the 1990s. <laughs> Or black potatoes. and white. <laughs> Color didn't appear until you guys were born. Yeah. <laughs> okay, might be pushing that issue. <laughs> they recommend obstacle lighting should be installed at Studlerberg. Well, yeah. That makes sense. No, the mountain has. It's not going to hinder anything. No. It's 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 a cost. These days, I'm sure there's lighting. On the I I will get to it. And finally, from their recommendations, and we'll do one from the NTSB. They recommend that the ILS runways should be fitted with optical approach aids, or PAPIs. PAPIs, oh, yeah, or BASIs. Of course. Yeah. And that happened in Zurich. They well, and it, would it have helped them? Probably not, because it doesn't feel doesn't seem like... They probably were inside of the runway, and then all of a sudden they lose sight of the runway while right. they're still on the glide slope. But at the Why same time... possible happening? At the right. same time, though, they really should have them. Yes. Yes. It's one of those things where they just throw it in there. You know, they're like, hey... By the way, you should do this. I realize this I wasn't an issue che- here, but cheater you should lights, do this. you know. Cheater lights, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And Let's... the NTSB made a recommendation. Yes. They recommend to issue an air carrier operations bulletin to principal operators inspectors requiring that operators of airplanes equipped with the following navigational receivers include in their pilot operating manuals procedures for detecting malfunctions that result in the display of disparate information. No what? Disparate. 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 Not desperate. Disparate. It sounds desperate to me. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And then they list a handful of models. I won't go through all of these. DC-8, DC-9, C-9, MD-80. Well, they're (coughs) talking about specifically... You guys know that I actually worked on DC-8? Yeah, I know. I remember that. That's That's crazy. No, I'm not that old. (laughs) 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 They were already in cargo use by that point, weren't they? Yeah. Also, notify formerly foreign airworthiness authorities about the potential failure modes in such equipment. So they're listing out, like, the navigation equipment, like the, the King equipment and Collins mm-hmm. equipment that are all similar. They don't have these monitoring, these bits of monitoring equipment. So this one sucks, but also all of these suck. Please tell everyone. Right. <laughs> so that's pretty much the gist of it. I mean, they have a whole, like, three pages on why that's important, but that's their actual recommendation. Jesus. Okay. This is combined data from the Wikipedia and the Air Disasters episode. Airlines gave the first officer more authority in critical flight situations. The procedure was changed so that if the co-pilot sees something wrong and calls for a go-around, and the captain doesn't execute it, he's authorized to do it by himself. Yes. So, Oh, in- so if the captain says no, he goes, well, screw you, I'm doing it anyway? Yeah. It's You can say, my airplane, I'm doing it. Yeah. I'm flying. On that go-around, there's no question, because again, back to what I was saying, I think that... 
you know, it could be something that is very timely and the copilot sees something the pilot doesn't see. And yeah, you yeah. Know, it makes a lot more sense that way. Absolutely. Yes. Alitalia added the nav receiver failure problem to their training and also added the actions that the crew should take in case it happens. So they added the crew resource management yep. pieces to the puzzle. Alitalia forbade interrupting a go-around completely. Once called, the go-around procedure has to be done. This rule is now general in almost all airlines. Mm-hmm. Swiss aviation authorities added lights to the mountain. Yes. Yep. As well as a minimum safe altitude warning system to their air traffic control center. So it actually tells the, the, the air ATC. traffic controller. The, yep. the famous yeah. unit that was in, in use already 10 years before. Uh-huh. Yes. Yep. And McDonnell Douglas revised their training manual to add information about the possibility of nav failure. I mean, they didn't scrap the DC-9 yet? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, unfortunately, they went on for like another 15 years. I think Delta finally retired. Well, it was even more than that because Delta retired them, I think, in the early 2010s or 2009. DC-9, but they're still like MD-80. Yeah, they still, well, yeah, they started getting rid of those. Yeah. But they, they had the DC-9 specifically all the way <clears throat> until 2009. Okay, we're bashing the airplane. It actually wasn't a bad airplane. <laughs> no, I, I mean. Some it, of that equipment was poorly designed. and, and yeah. I mean, you think about the DC-9, it had a really long history, actually. The DC-9 was, basically, it was what encouraged Boeing to make the 737. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so, I mean, it's as old as the 737, but the DC-9 variants, I mean, they kept flying. There's still some of them flying, actually. I've seen a couple of flying airplanes. I'm going to read one line from the Wikipedia <laughs> that I can actually classify It's technically incorrect. Wikipedia incorrect? I know. (laughs) What? I will explain why. Alitalia continued to use the call sign of the aircraft, of the accident aircraft, Alitalia 404, after the crash. It was primarily used until Alitalia ceased operations on a Rome-Frankfurt route. This is technically false, because ITA, which is Alitalia for all intents and purposes, still uses that same call sign on the Rome-Frankfurt route to this day. It landed today... At 5.35 local time in Frankfurt. On time. It's just a number. It's just a number. Just a number. Yeah, but, I mean, superstition exists, and that's why a lot of big crash... airline has uh, Alitalia Flight 13. Mm. (laughs) 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 They call it Black Cat. Flying under the ladder. (laughs) We break a mirror and fly... fly Sorry, I don't mean to Tipped over the salt. No, no joke. Enough of the joke. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That was... You've got this. <laughs> what's the What's the name of it? Alitalia? Alitalia Flight 404. Yes. Air 404. Flight not Air, found. Air, Flight not Air found. 404. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Thanks to our patrons. You guys are awesome. Thank you to <laughs> our listener. Yes. Patron Julian from Switzerland for recommending this crash. Probably why he very recommended this crash. Yes. I'll admit that this was very interesting. And as a matter of fact, I think this is the, the pure example of why investigations really need to happen. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, a lot of really good things came out of this one. I mean, it's unfortunate what happened, but a lot of very good changes happened. And I mean, you really can't say the industry's at all in the same place as it was when this accident happened, especially well, in Zurich. And Accidents happen, we learn and improve. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, everybody. We hope you have a safe and healthy week. Thank you for being here. Thanks, hey, thanks for thank having me. Yeah. This was actually really fun. Thank you. This time I was able to actually interact more. Yeah. In, in a meaningful manner. Yeah. With <laughs> jokes and everything. Yeah. No, this was good. This was a lot of fun. And we'll catch you all next time. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.